This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, in our 224th episode, we have two new dinosaurs, both from Mongolia, and we're also going to discuss buying fossils and fossil scans as like a little special report. (laughs) We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Dromaeosaurus. But before we get into all that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons who are already supporting the show and helping us to keep everything going. And this week, we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Quinn Pomeroy, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, William, Red Sox Rex, Jay, Wouter, and Shirak. And Shirak just joined, so thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. We're getting a lot of good conversations going on our Discord, too, and we really appreciate it. It's cool to see the community growing, so if you want to join, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. It's a really good place to see pictures, since (laughs) obviously as a podcast, it's really hard for us to share images, but... The Discord is like, that's what a lot of it is, is pictures being shared. I usually put up at least a couple pictures from each week's episode to kind of fill in gaps that is really hard to explain with words. Jumping into the news, our first new dinosaur we're going to talk about is a new baby oviraptorid, and it's named Gobiraptor minutus. And Gobiraptor is because it's an oviraptorid from the Gobi Desert, and minutus is because it's minute or small. <laughs> I should mention too, this was published in PLOS One by Sung Jin Lee and others. And that means it's open access so you can see all of their fossil pictures and recreations and read the full text if you want, which is always great. It's from the late Cretaceous, which in this case is about 70 million years ago. And they found a good portion of the skull, basically the whole mouth and a small piece of the post-orbital. And of course, when I say mouth, it's basically a beak since it's an oviraptorid. But they also found some post-cranial remains, including most of the foot, most of the hips, a few vertebrae from kind of around the hips and the base of the tail, and then also some pieces of an arm and the leg. So pretty good smattering of pieces. Yeah. They did histology on its femur and found that it was still growing based on, you know, like the overall structure of the bone. I can see that things are still developing. 
but unfortunately they didn't find any lags in the bone, which either could mean that it was under a year old or that its femur just didn't preserve any of the lags since that's the bone that they looked at. And it has a pretty big hollow, you know, medullary cavity in the middle. So it could just be that they got absorbed. Who knows? But given that they call it a baby in their title, <laughs> I'm guessing that they think it was probably just very young and that's why there aren't any lags. Based on their little silhouettes that they put together, because a lot of times these papers don't actually say how big the dinosaurs are, but I can kind of piece it together based on their little maps <laughs> when they're drawn to scale at least. So based on that, they showed it as about 120 centimeters long and about 70 centimeters tall, or about four feet long and two feet tall. So it is pretty small, but it's not really baby baby size. Right. Think about something four feet long. There are a lot of adult dinosaurs that are that big. Yeah. And I think oviraptors even, some of them are pretty small, even as adults. If it was meant to be a large adult though, then. Yeah. I mean, gigantoraptor is way, way bigger than that. It's like twice as tall as a person, <laughs> but it has kind of the same proportions. So it's kind of hard to tell where it would have stopped if we don't know how old it was. When they did the phylogeny of the dinosaur, they found that its closest relatives were from southern China, which is kind of interesting because there are a lot of oviraptors that we find in Mongolia, but for the most part, they don't seem to be closely related to one another. A lot of times they're closer relatives with things that are a little bit farther away. So that's the case with Gobi raptor too. But to me, the most interesting thing about the dinosaur find is that the lower part of its beak curves downward and it's also extra thick, which the researchers say that it likely had a, quote, specialized diet that probably included hard materials such as seeds or bivalves, end quote. And bivalves are things like clams, so it's quite a beak. If it can just crush through a clam, that's crazy. Yeah. And our other new dinosaur that we have from Mongolia, this one was published by T. Tumanova and V. Alifanov in Paleontological Journal, which is not open access. And honestly, I didn't really even bother trying to get access <laughs> because they didn't find much of the dinosaur. It was really just a few tail vertebrae and parts of the hips. It's a stegosaur. And it's also previously been described in other places kind of informally. And when they talk about it before, they've called it Wu-Urosaurus mongoliensis. And yeah, it wasn't officially named that. Now they've named it Mongolostegus expectabilis. Mongolostegus. Yeah. That's how you know it's a stegosaur. And from Mongolia. <laughs> it's the first stegosaur that's been named in Mongolia. And the type species of Wu-Urosaurus is Wu-Urosaurus homheni, and Wu-Urosaurus homheni is from the early Cretaceous, about 130 million years ago. But this paper put Mongolostegus in the quote-unquote Aptian to Albion, which is sometime between 100 and 125 million years ago. So it's definitely younger based on that analysis but it could just be like 5 million years younger or it could be 30 million years younger. <laughs> kind of need to narrow down that time range a little bit, I think. But either way, it's probably the latest known stegosaur to date, I would say. Couldn't find anything younger, at least. Not really sure how well this separate genus will hold up over time, though, because there have been previous publications about it 
that don't think it should get its own name. And then this one got its own name in a journal that I haven't really seen too much from before. So we shall see. It may end up being Wurasaurus again in the not so distant future. But Mongolostegus is a pretty good name. Mm-hmm. So that would kind of be a shame. Unfortunately, with this Mongolostegus, they obviously didn't find any plates or tail spikes or its skull for that matter. So we don't know what it ate or what its display structures looked like or anything like that. I guess our best guess is that it just kind of looked like Wurasaurus because that's... What they thought it was. Yeah. Close relative. Yeah. And that it probably ate plants. Yeah, probably. (laughs) It would be pretty cool if they found a carnivorous Cretaceous Stegosaur. Yeah, that'd be weird. (laughs) A big departure. Because some people think that Stegosaurs went extinct because they're certain specific food, a specific type of cycad or something went extinct, or at least, you know, started getting outcompeted by other plants. And, you know, what if stegosaurus just became carnivores <laughs> rather than figuring out a different plant to eat? That'd be pretty awesome. Tenderize the meat with their thagomizer. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a good comic. Yeah. Might be better for an ankylosaur though. The club tail? Yeah. Guess it just depends how you want your meat tenderized. tenderized or perforated. (laughs) There was also a really interesting article in Nature recently where they were talking about why people do and don't share 3D scans of their dinosaur fossils and other fossils, but really dinosaur fossils is what the people want. (laughs) Well, not everybody, but it's what we want. These people, yeah. So it's really interesting because they did a survey of a couple hundred papers and scientists by extension to figure out why 3D data wasn't shared when scientists did 3D models for their analysis. And, you know, it's kind of the basis of the paper, but then it's not included in the supplemental information or in any way that other researchers could use. So what they found was that about two thirds of papers where they made 3D data they didn't share it online, whereas about one third did share it. And that's actually a little bit more than I thought, because it seems to me like I can never find 3D scans of things. (laughs) But I guess it's shared about a third of the time. And then there were a lot of reasons that different paleontologists had for not sharing their work. The most common one was that it was embargoed for future work. So basically... I think it's kind of the same as the second most common answer, which is that they aren't required to share it, meaning that once you get a fossil, if you can do a 3D scan of it, you can easily publish multiple papers about it. So say you found like a really cool skull of some dinosaur that people hadn't seen before, you could do a paper about its inner ear and how that looks. You could do a paper about the rest of its brain case and maybe, you know, like what kind of vision it had. You could do a paper about sort of the blood supply to different parts of the head. You can do all sorts of papers from just one single scan. And given that there's a lot of pressure for researchers to constantly publish new papers over and over again, it seems like that might be the main driving force. But some other pretty common answers were things like copyright restrictions, which would be something coming from either the publication itself or from the museum, more likely. And a lot of other answers were basically that, you know, either they were going to share it later or they didn't think about it or just kind of like, well, it doesn't seem that important to get it out there right now. So 
I contend that it is important to get it out there. <laughs> because as Jack Seng from the University of Buffalo said in the discussion with Nature, quote, open sharing is the best model with which to accelerate the pace of science, end quote, which I think is just the best possible rallying cry that everyone can get behind, right? All scientists are trying to advance our understanding of everything. And if we can't share information freely, or if we're limiting ourselves in what information we share, then it's just going to slow things down. And yeah, I mean, it's nice. Everybody would love to have exclusive access to something that they can publish on over and over again and really get make a name for themselves. But as a field, paleontology has really taken a strong stance against private collections of things. So treating museums as a special entity that gets to have private collections, whereas individuals don't, just uh, really bothers me. I know I've talked about that before. I don't think you're the only one who feels that way. Yeah, they, they spoke with Andy Farkey again, who I've quoted one of his previous articles about this. We talked to him about it too. Yeah. And he was quoted in this article saying, I think journal policies can be really powerful. And there is some good evidence that if journals like, say, PLOS One or Nature, some of these big ones said, you can't publish in our journal unless you share your 3D scans, people would probably just do it. <laughs> It's kind of a competing thing because on the one hand, you want to be able to publish lots of times, but on the other hand, if you're not getting published in really big time journals, that hurts your credibility too. So you, we might be able to kind of just swing the balance by like limiting access to the most revered journals with new policies. And it's actually already driven some a fair amount of change in paleontology because a lot of these major journals no longer allow publications of privately held fossils. So if you want to publish on a fossil, you have to get exclusive access to a museum. In other words, researchers couldn't just go to a private collector and publish on their fossil. They had to actually secure rights for a museum so that it's actually held in the public trust rather than in a private collection. And apparently this has really pushed through that sort of scientific change and now it's really considered unethical to be working with private collections. You know, you want to be working with things that are held in museums. Mm -hmm. But I think we're still kind of not all the way there because it's like, okay, it's in the museum, but now it's whose museum is it and who at that museum has access to it. Whereas the whole point of getting it out of the private collection and into a museum is that everyone has access to it and we're not there yet. <laughs> so maybe journals can go that extra step and say like, yeah, it's nice that you have it in your collection, but you have to let everybody see it too. It's not good enough to just have it in your museum. They kind of call out a couple museums in the article that don't allow sharing of 3D images without a big bureaucratic process, including both the Field Museum and the Natural History Museum in London, which is just a shame because they have such amazing finds in their collections. And I really don't think they can justify not sharing these things, especially Natural History Museum of London, which is supposed to be a public institution because the Smithsonian in the US is sharing all of their 3D scans because it's like, eh, it's nationally funded. What? How are we going to possibly say that we own it? So I, at the very least, it seems like national museums should be sharing these things. But there is a good counterpoint that they raise in the article, and that's that some poorer museums, especially in developing countries, rely on the income from sales of replicas to kind of keep the museums 
going. So if they lost that funding source, it could be a problem. I don't think that's a reason to kind of slow the pace of science, though. I think that's a more ambitious goal, you know, like we all want to learn together. And I, I don't necessarily think that it would damage the scientific pursuits in those countries because, say, you're in a smaller country that has less fossils to work with. Now, all of a sudden, you have access to all of the fossils all over the world. So you can do research on those. You don't necessarily need to, you know, have your walled garden. So I, I don't actually think that it would necessarily harm scientists in smaller countries, but it might harm museums in those countries. So I don't know. I have to work it out, but we need to share it. <laughs> Sharing is caring. Sharing is caring. So kind of related to fossil ownership, we've got a really quick update about Montana and fossil ownership so that Montana House of Representatives passed the bill at the end of February that says that fossils are part of a property's surface estate, not the mineral estate. And it passed 96 to zero. Huh? Yeah. But now it still has to go to the Senate. And again, this still doesn't affect the case of the dueling dinosaurs, which is kind of what started at least this discussion in Montana. But yeah, it will not affect that case. Yeah, it's interesting. If it passed 96 to zero, it seems like it should probably pass the Senate, right? I don't know if anything ever passes unanimously in the House and then fails in the Senate. That seems crazy. I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah. And last, thanks to JurassicBen27 on Instagram for this one. So in Wales, Jerry Adams, who's a grandfather of 12, recently purchased Alan, the dinosaur, on eBay from the Dan... Your Ogaf Caves at the National Show Cave Center for Wales. And it's this 17 kilometer, 11 mile long cave system in South Wales. And Alan is 15 feet tall, 30 foot long, an Allosaurus model. The first one you said that, I thought you were saying the dinosaur was 17 kilometers long. Oh, And I no. was like, I think that there is a typo somewhere in here. <laughs> no, no, the cave system. <laughs> <laughs> but he just got one model from the cave system. Yes. Apparently, Alan's one of about 250 dinosaurs, but the National Showcase Center for Wales is getting six new ones this summer, so they needed to make space, so they sold Alan on eBay. Holy cow, they have 250? Yeah. That's really neat. In the caves? I think it's outside the caves. Huh. It didn't specify how. If anyone's been there and you know how the dinosaurs are showcased. The National Showcaves Center? Yeah. That sounds really cool. Yeah. So yeah, Jerry bought Alan for 1,600 pounds and the money went to help raise money for a diabetes charity. So everybody's happy. And Jerry describes his new dinosaur as a big garden ornament. Apparently it's already attracting a bunch of attention. I've seen tons of news articles about this and people flocking to see this dinosaur in this man's garden. Seems like a good deal. 1,600 pounds. Mm -hmm. It's like, a what is it? I don't know what the conversion rate is now, but maybe like $2,000 or something for an awesome dinosaur in your front yard. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Alan is an old fashioned looking dinosaur. Still. Pretty cool. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions. 
and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now for our dinosaur of the day, Dromaeosaurus, which was a request from Morgan E. via Patreon, so thanks. Dromaeosaurus was a theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now the western U.S. and Alberta, Canada. Not many fossils have been found, but the holotype includes a partial skull, it's missing most of the top of the snout, and some foot bones, among others. Discovery of other Dromaeosaurids have helped fill in the gaps about Dromaeosaurus. So, like Dakota Raptor, Utah Raptor, other raptors. Velociraptor. Yes. Dromaeosaurus was about 6.6 feet or 2 meters long and weighed about 33 pounds or 15 kilograms. It had a robust skull and sharp teeth. At least robust for a dromaeosaur. Yes. Well, also, I mean heavy. So Phil Curry published a study of Dromaeosaurus in 1994 and said that the, quote, brain case bones are not pneumatized. Oh, gotcha. Because I still think of the dromaeosaur skull as kind of long and skinny, mm-hmm. not like a T-Rex that's all like bulky and wide and yeah, tall. Yeah, but and then stuff. T-Rex has a bunch of holes in the skull to lighten the load, so. Very true. Yeah. Germaeosaurus probably had a good sense of smell, and it also had robust teeth that had a lot of wear and tear. It was probably using its teeth to crush and tear or, quote, puncture and pull instead of slicing flesh. Therian and others in 2005 said that Germaeosaurus' bite was almost three times more powerful than Velociraptor, and that Dromaeosaurus may have used its jaws more than its sickle claw. Hmm. That's one of the things that Dromaeosaurids are known for is that sickle claw. Yeah, that's interesting. So Dromaeosaurus may have gone after large prey. It may have even eaten bone. Could be a similar feeding strategy to Tyrannosaurids. And like I mentioned, it had the sickle claw on each foot. The type species is Dromaeosaurus albertensis. It was originally described in 1922 by William Diller Matthew and Barnum Brown. The genus name means swift running lizard, and the species name refers to Alberta. The fossils were found in 1914 on an American Museum of Natural History expedition at Red Deer River. That area is now part of Dinosaur Provincial Park. Seven other species were named as Dromaeosaurus, mostly based on fragments, and some have been reclassified as other genera. You got Troodon and Velociraptor, and the rest are considered Nomina dubia. 
Matthew and Brown put Dromaeosaurus in its own subfamily, Dromaeosaurinae, under Dinodontidae, but in 1969, John Ostrom said that it was similar to Velociraptor and Deinonychus and assigned them all to Dromaeosauridae. Many more dinosaurs have been found, so there's a lot of subfamilies within Dromaeosauridae, including Dromaeosaurinae. Dromaeosaurs in general were small to medium-sized feathered carnivorous theropods. They lived in the Cretaceous. They're often known as raptors. As we mentioned, one of the most famous ones is Velociraptor. They're found all over the world on six continents. There are possibly some Dromaeosaur teeth that have been found in Australia, so maybe all seven continents. <laughs> They're very closely related to birds. Bob Bakker and John Ostrom used Dromaeosaurs, specifically Deinonychus, to show that dinosaurs were fast and smart and related to modern birds. It makes sense because they picked the name raptor based on the group of modern birds called raptors. Mm-hmm. Which I know some ornithologists are kind of annoyed by when people think raptors are talking about <laughs> extinct dinosaurs. Like, yeah, oh, there yeah. were regular birds first. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> They're all predators. Anyway, yep. <laughs> generally, Dromaeosaurs had large skulls and serrated teeth, good binocular vision, large hands, long tails, and then the sickle claws on their feet. And they kept the toe with the sickle claw on it off the ground when walking. They probably also were all feathered. You can see a cast of Dromaeosaurus at the Royal Tyrrell Museum's field station. There's a pack of Dromaeosaurus attacking a Lambiosaurus. Hmm. And our fun fact of the day is that the first Stegosaurs were found in the late Jurassic sediments in England and the U.S. and later Asia. But now there are several early Cretaceous Stegosaurs, especially from Asia. And this means that we're potentially looking at ecosystems in the late Cretaceous if we can find slightly later ones that have stegosaurs, which would be awesome because traditionally we always see them, you know, in the Jurassic, sometimes early Cretaceous in more modern depictions. Mm -hmm. Maybe they did turn carnivorous. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That is not factual. (laughs) I don't know if that belongs in the fun fact section. Okay. (laughs) But Mongolostegus and Uurosaurus seem to be the most recent genera, but there have been some recent tracks found in Australia, so that might be a good place to find some more recent stegosaurs. I think one of the estimates put some stegosaur tracks from Australia at about 115 million years ago, and since the dividing line between the early and late Cretaceous is about 100 million years ago, if we could get to 115, we're getting pretty close to that late Cretaceous point for stegosaurs, which would be pretty awesome. There have been reports of late Cretaceous stegosaurs in the past, but it turned out to be like some marine reptile and not a dinosaur. Mm. Oops. Happens now and then. It does. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Also, join our Patreon so you can get in on that Discord action and pictures, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. And we're also on social media and YouTube. So yeah, keep in touch. Thanks again, and until next time. Good